Rivka Goldstein. And uh, I'd like to wish them all the best and Hatzlacha in all their endeavors. And for the little Bojcik Yosef, everything should be beautiful. God willing, they're hopefully going to be back here soon so you'll actually get to see these people who are friends of uh, our group. So, tonight, what are we talking about tonight? We're talking about create your own rainbow. So before we get into the topic of create your own let us talk about some interesting things that tell us that seems to not make sense. So let's start with the first and foremost. We're talking about the rainbow. When God picks a sign, it isn't just, uh, 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 you know what, make it a rainbow. Obviously, a rainbow specifically answers why God should not bring another flood. In God's world, everything is picture perfect. The sign is not just the first thing that popped into God's mind, so to speak. It's specific. If we understand the rainbow, we understand God's promise, we understand why God promised, and we understand the message to us every time we see the rainbow. You know, in Jewish, in Jewish uh, tradition, one doesn't gaze upon the rainbow. You look, you make the blessing, and you move away. And the reason why you don't gaze upon the rainbow is because it isn't exactly very complimentary that there's a rainbow. God said that when he will want to destroy any specific part of the world because of their behavior, he'll place the rainbow in the sky. So seeing a rainbow is a huge wake-up call to teshuva. And that's why we don't just look at it and gaze at it. We look at it, we make the bracha, and we move on. And therefore, there's a reason why the rainbow was picked. It's specifically the rainbow. Question number one. Question number two is even more mind-boggling. The end of Genesis, the end of Bereshus, what does it say? It says, and God saw that the people are bad, they have bad hearts, and therefore from the very onset they're bad, and God says, I want to wipe them out. What does God say after the flood, after Noah brought the sacrifice? What does God say? The same logic, but opposite outcome. Because they are evil from their very birth, therefore I will not wipe them out. Kind of like it's not their fault. What do you want from them? We actually learn, Rashi tells us that from the moment of birth, right there as the baby starts, the contraction starts, the Yitzhahara comes in. We're actually taught that the Yitzhahara has a very strong Talmudic argument Thirteen, So therefore when the Yetzer Tov starts winning and starts demanding that we should be subservient to it, what does the Yetzer Hara say? The evil inclination says, one second, there's a Talmudic rule. If I have a loan going out to someone on January 1st, 2010, and then I have another loan that's 2013. So if I try to pay the latter before, before I pay the previous loan, what happens? He comes with a specific Talmudic complaint which says, Shtari Kodem. Hey, 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 my contract's first. So the Yetzirah actually tells the Yetzirah, whoa, 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 where are you going? That intellect, those feelings, that all those talents, that belongs to me. My contract's first. I signed on the minute he was born. You came along at the Barabbat Mitzvah. So Hashem recognizes this. And Hashem says, so what do you want from them? 
For their hearts are evil. They're, tur- they're tuned into evil. And I want to just be very clear what evil means because we have a very specific picture of evil. You know, you watch uh, Friday the 13th and that's evil. We're not talking about that. We're talking about ego. E- evil equals ego. When a person is egocentric, when I come before the greater big, then what happens is that that is evil. So when we talk about a child being born evil, we're just talking about a child really, really believes that he or she is the center of the universe. And when my diaper's wet, I don't care what mommy or tati is doing, everything has to stop. It's just that simple. They don't fathom that, <laughs> what do you mean, what comes before me? That's called evil. So Hashem's saying, if I've created mankind that the very primary, not secondary, primary paradigm is egocentric, then what do I want from them? Why should I wipe them out? It's not their fault. So the obvious question here is very simple. How can you have the very same logic, the very same reasoning, be the reason to wipe out an entire creation, and then later that very same reasoning becomes the reason why we shouldn't, we shouldn't wipe them out. Questions? That question is actually discussed at great length in Hasidus. What is going on here? Why is that very same logic causing two opposite things? Something between the end of Genesis and the middle of Noah, something there happened that changed everything. The answer to that question, what changed everything, is the answer to the secret of the rainbow. If we can understand what God is telling us with the rainbow, then we can understand what Noah did in between the end of Genesis to the middle of Noah, and therefore the very same logic becomes the thrust to do the exact opposite of what God originally did. He originally decided that he regrets the entire creation, wipe them out, because they are, from the very onset, evil, and now it becomes the exact opposite. So let's talk about the rainbow for a moment. What is a rainbow? Just plain, simple science. What is a rainbow? So when light hits a prism, what happens? When light hits a prism, the light spreads out, separates the colors. So all of that really exists within the light, just we don't see it in the light until it hits the rainbow, until it hits the prism, and at that corner it splits, and then all of a sudden we see everything that was in the light, which is even more beautiful than the original light. In Kabbalah and Hasidus, we refer to these two lights as two different names. The direct light is called Or Yashar, the straight light. The light which is rebound is called Or Chozer. Just to share with you the power of Or Chozer, rebound, revert, returning, Chozer. You have the word Chozer Bechuvah, returning. So what happens? The rebound light has a very interesting power which Kabbalah uses to explain The closer you are to the sun, the hotter it should be. Yet we know within the three atmospheres, the highest atmosphere, 
the middle atmosphere and the lowest atmosphere. We know that the highest atmosphere is warm. The lowest atmosphere is warmer than the middle atmosphere, right? You travel up in the plane, it gets cold. Well, that doesn't make sense. You're traveling up, you're getting closer to the sun, it should actually be warmer. And the answer is that because the lower hemisphere has the double whammy, the light comes, hits the earth, rebounds, so now it has a double dose of the heat of the sun. So therefore, the Or Choser is actually stronger and more beautiful than the original Or Yashar. Now I want to just explain this, just in little metaphors, just explanations. Anyone in here in the room a doctor? You're a doctor, so you will verify, and if I'm wrong, don't say, <laughs> no, but seriously. You'll verify that what happens when someone breaks a bone? That a very spot where you break your bone, what happens? It actually becomes thicker than every other spot. Because first it'll grow an outer ring, and then it'll fix the inside. When you go, right. So what happens when you make a knot? Something rips, and you want to tie it together. What happens when you double knot it? At the point of the double knot, it's stronger than everywhere else. What does the Talmud say? The difference between a Baal Teshuvah and a Tzaddik? There's two, there's two different hand-me-downs to the wording. One says that the place where a Baal Teshuvah stands, the Tzaddik does not stand. And the second Nusach is that the place where the Baal Teshuvah stands, the Tzaddik cannot stand. And it comes for the same reason. Because the original flow of the soul, the Ava, was stopped, therefore it built up pressure, built up pressure, built up pressure, it broke the dam, and when it breaks the dam, the current is so many times stronger than the original current of the original flow. So what happens here is, when we talk about the rebound light versus the original divine light, the rebound light is actually so much more beautiful, so much more precious, and so much more powerful than the original light. And somehow, somewhere, God is hinting that to us by telling us that the reason why I will not anymore destroy mankind for their sins is because of the rainbow. Something here happened. God's telling us something. There's the original divine light that we're all born with and that we botch up. We just puncture holes into the pipe system and now the divine light is leaking out to where it doesn't belong. We're not keeping the pipes clean by doing what we have to do so the pipes get clogged. The original Or Yashar has a problem because of our behavior. Mind you, I just want to point out something you'll notice that the most amazing moments we had with God, we always botched up number one, and then came number two. Number two, less divine, but more precious. For example, the tablets, the Luchot Abrit. Bear in mind that we need to still think about this concept. It says that God, and, and the commentaries work with the wording, God doesn't have regret. Regret can only be with he or she who did not see the outcome, thought it was going to go this way, it went bad, and I regret what I did. God is not susceptible to regret. It just doesn't make sense in God's world. 
He is, was, and always will be at the same time. It didn't happen, it happened, and it's going to happen all at the same time. So the, the whole phenomenon of regret doesn't make sense. So therefore, if we really take an inside peek to the Torah portion, every time you see that plan A botched up, we sent out a patch, plan B, realize that that wasn't a mistake. That wasn't a mistake. Starting from the very secrets of creation. When we're taught by our sages that God created the worlds and destroyed them until he got to this world, that wasn't a mistake. Oops, back to the drawing board. The great Ariza, Rabbi Zegluria, the Kabbalist, tells us that the original creation of the world of Tohu, which shattered and fell into the world of Tikkun, was the original plan. I once wrote such an article. Second chance, the original plan. Because that's really what it's all about. So understand that God meant originally to have given us the first tablets. We should botch it up and then bring in the second tablets. Because the first tablets is Ori Ashar. As rich as, as it may be, it's not the rainbow. Comes along the golden calf, break the first one, bring the second one. Now we got the rainbow. And the same thing with the temples. So we always have that original invitation from God. The first tablets was actually the first invitation from God into a relationship. And it wasn't possible for that relationship to endure. Because it came from above. Only after the golden calf, the broken tablets, bring the second tablets, the rainbow, that is able to endure. And so too with the end of Genesis and the beginning of Noah. What took place from Adam until Noah would be considered for tonight or Yashar, the straight, divine, colorless light. And we don't know how to digest that. We definitely can't sustain that type of life. Comes along the botchup, comes along the flood, and then we introduce the second level, i.e. the second tablets, the rainbow. Now because that comes from below, it can long endure within the below. So now that we got Kabbalistic enough, let's get practical. The one thing that took place between the first outcome of the logic that man, mankind is bad from their very onset to the second outcome of the same logic is very simple. Look in the verse. God, Noah came out of the ark and what did he do? He took from the seven kosher and he brought a sacrifice. And what does the verse say? And Elohim, even though that that's normally Elohim is the name of strictness and justice, but the tzaddik has the power to reverse that. So even Elohim was touched and aroused by the scent of the sacrifice, and then was the change. Very interesting. What is a sacrifice? Sacrifice is teshuva. That's what a sacrifice is all about. You learn the laws of Maimonides, and he tells you how every single part of the sacrifice, he who is bringing or she who is bringing the sacrifice, needs to realize that it should have been me. 
and in God's compassion it takes the place of me. For those who do kaparot, we say the same thing. So what changed here was the introduction of teshuva. So at first, that wasn't part of the plan. At first, there was emet. There was or ein sof. There was the straight light. And the mandate was, do not batch up. Mankind did batch up. The original light cannot digest that. Let me introduce to you an interesting teaching from our sages. I don't know what this means exactly, but I'm just telling to you the way it says. And God asked wisdom, what shall I do to he who sins? And wisdom answered the famous verse, and wisdom will give life to its master. So once you broke away from wisdom, remember that sin is a sign of foolishness. Once you've disconnected with wisdom, you must die. And God turned to the Torah and asked the Torah, and what do you say should happen with the person who sins? So the Torah, of course, fishes into Leviticus and comes up with the verse that what? That he who did an involuntary sin shall bring a sacrifice and be forgiven. But what happens to he who or she who, brings a who commits a voluntary sin? The Torah says, I can't help you. If you voluntarily, voluntarily turned your back on me, I can't be the one to help you. Concludes the Medrash. And he asked HaKadosh Baruch Hu, He asked the Holy One, blessed be He. And what do you say should be done? And Kutcher answered, Let the person do Teshuvah and live. Now, Emet is not mean and vicious and vengeful. The Torah is called the Torah of compassion. It's definitely not vengeful. And yet it was not within the genetics of either of them to be able to allow for Teshuvah for the voluntary sin. The Or Yashar that comes from above to below doesn't speak that language. At best, at best, it can understand involuntary slips. But to voluntarily go against Torah and then change your mind? So the Or Yashar can't digest that. And thus at the end of Genesis, that's what we're stuck with. We're stuck with the first two answers. You've cut yourself off from the source of life, and thus there is no other answer but The entire existence has to be erased. And if you learn the, the, the interpretations according to Kabbalah, you'll know that the 40 days equals the 40 sa'ah measurements of water, which makes a mikveh kosher. And thus what really happened was God took the entire world and submerged it into a mikveh. That's the Kabbalistic approach. And that's why the waters of the flood is not only called mei mabul, it's also called mei noach. Noach actually means what? Minucha. It's actually a good thing. The waters of the flood is interpreted very often as a good thing because it was a cleansing process. But be it as it may, what did not exist pre-Noach bringing the sacrifice was this concept that even if you did a voluntary sin, even if the entire civilization has become corrupt, we can still do teshuva. That means, very simple, that God did not send Noach 
the way he sent Yonah. Yonah came to a complete corrupt society, Nineveh. He gave them a warning. The king and all did Teshuvah and were forgiven. Pre-flood, that wasn't possible. Pre-flood, we only had the first two answers. The answer of Midat HaEmet, the attribute of truth, and Midat HaTorah, which is called Rachamim, but nevertheless, compassion. But nevertheless, we can't go that far to help he who voluntarily turned his back or her back on me. Comes along Noach and does the Karban. Now here's an interesting teaching in the, in the, in the Zohar. Raza the Karban, the, the secret of the, of the sacrifice, goes up until the secret of the Ensof. You'll notice that very many mitzvahs in the Torah are told to us, and very few of them, besides sacrifice, none of them, have the words, Reach Nechoach, what a pleasant fragrance before me. Doesn't say that by any other mitzvah. Doesn't say, if you put on tefillin, Reach Lechoach Lefnei Hashem. It doesn't say that. Doesn't talk about no pleasant fragrance. Now, stop for a moment, and let's think about what a pleasant fragrance does. When you're feeling totally weak, one of the best ways to have an immediate rejuvenation is through the sense of smell. Those of you who know that on Yom Kippur, when you're feeling exhausted, you don't have to use smelling salt, which was <laughs> the olden day, you know, just when you wanted to get even with someone. But today, this year, someone brought into the shul a couple of cloves stuck into a lemon. And the, and the smell was actually very pleasant. It wasn't like a sharp ammonia smell. But it gave you back. Reach nechoach means when God, quote-unquote, so to speak, is being exhausted by our misbehavior. The karban rejuvenates God. Obviously, I'm using words that are difficult to use on God. But if you think about the cause and effect relationship that God put himself into with us, God made himself vulnerable to us. So in a certain sense, when we sin, we're weakening God. Whenever we talk about sin, whenever we talk about um, exile, we refer to and God slept. When we talk about redemption, which is the whole story of the Megillah, we always say very loud, On that night, the king's sleep wasn't there. And of course, you know the teaching that Achashverosh goes to an Achus Shiloh refers to God. So the deeper meaning of that verse is that on that night, some type of smelling salt, some type of fragrance rejuvenated the king from his slumber. And that's the secret of a karban. And that's why only the karban has those words. Reach nechoach. It's just a pleasant fragrance. The power of the teshuvah, of the karban, is what made all the difference. Let me share with you an interesting thing. When there is a loving relationship, and when there's not a loving relationship, let's just talk about one simple concept. The husband left his socks on the floor. When the relationship isn't pleasant, she's going to fetch about it. No decency, I've told him a million times, what's so hard when he gets undressed and just take the socks and put it into the laundry bag, right? 
What happens when there's a very endearing relationship? He's such a cute schmazzle. <laughs> Wherever he goes, he just sucks in the floor. Same concept, totally driven by pre-existing emotions. If I'm frustrated with you, then your mistakes are like salt on my wounds and I'm going to lash out. If I'm feeling completely endeared, then I'm going to smile and find the very thing that would irritate me. Actually, I find cutesy. Man, don't try this at home. <laughs> but, but in reality, it's amazing how the experience and reaction actually is not dependent upon just the action. It's actually dependent upon the pre-existing feeling. Once Hashem was quote-unquote aroused by the power of mankind's teshuva, then all of a sudden the statement went, really, what, what can I really want from them? Yitzhahara is with them before they even pop out of the wound. Versus the first time when there was no endearment, there was just perfection and truth. It was like salt on the wound. What are you doing to me? What are you doing to me? I've connected you with me. And look what you're schlepping me into. So the rainbow secret is the power of teshuva. That's what it all boils down to. If we can reawaken that power of endearment. Now here's what's interesting. What's interesting is that to God, you're not going to find this in many teachings because normally it says clearly the purpose of creation, the purpose of life is Torah and mitzvot, namely the straight light, the direct light. Don't botch up. But in very precious teachings, you're going to hear the opposite. You're going to hear that Torah and mitzvot existed 2,000 years before the world was created. And therefore, in essence, Torah is not why God created the world. Because that he already had before. And if you remember the laws that goes on concerning holiness, by holiness, potential does not lack actual. Because within the potential lies the actual. It's only for us mankind that potential is worthless unless it's actualized. But in the face of God, that isn't so. Potential, actual, it's all the said. It's all the same. He said, and it was. So really, from the perspective of Torah mitzvot, he had it all. He didn't need to create the world. He didn't need to contract the light. He didn't need to create darkness and evil. So what is the one thing God, quote-unquote, did not have pre-creation? What's the one thing we give God that God did not give to us? Again, this is all so to speak. Teshuvah. Pre-existence, there was perfection. If there's perfection, there's no mistakes. If there's no mistakes, there's no teshuvah. Thus, if you want to know why your soul really came down to this world, it's not to be perfect. Angels are perfect. It's not to live only right. Angels live only right. The one thing God has from us that he doesn't have from any of his celestial beings is teshuvah. Above, there is no rainbows. Rainbows don't exist above. There is no rebound. How can you have rebound if everything is transparent to God? Here's a very interesting concept just to bring home the point. 
One of the teachings we have about Mount Sinai is that there was no echo. And the Rebbe of Blessed Memory wants to know, why is that such a huge thing? A. B. Why did God make that miracle? We know that the Talmud tells us that God makes no miracle in vain because he created the laws of nature. So why would he break them for no reason? So the Rebbe wants to know, what's this whole thing about no echoes? And the answer is because in the original invitation to the universe to have a relationship with God, what God needed was that everything should be transparent. What is the definition of an echo? It's very simple. This substance does not absorb the voice. Thus the voice has no, no choice but to rebound. So if there was an echo by the Ten Commandments, that means that there's some substance out there that did not absorb the voice of God. If you don't absorb the original voice of God, there is no future. So the Talmud tells us that everything was transparent to God. Everything absorbed the voice. And therefore, everything was now in a relationship with God. Now let's go to the next part. So in celestial beings and once in history, until Mashiach comes, once in history, it happened down here that there was no rebound. Everything was transparent to divine light. The original Oryashar. But other than that, other than celestial beings and other than that one time in history where terrestrial beings were able to live up to that and also not by choice. It was just God's voice penetrated everything. Other than that, the one thing we have to offer God that no celestial being could offer God is a rainbow. If a rainbow is dependent on rebound, you can't have rebound in something that's transparent and fully absorbs. So it's actually the beauty. Listen to the logic. It's the beauty that we are evil, that we are egocentric, that will not simply absorb God's light, but we're going to rebound it. That makes us so precious. Now I will share with you, as little of a lecturer as I am, I get this. Because the one thing I hate giving a lecture is to a bunch of people, yeah, yeah, oh, that, yeah, you're right. What I'm looking is for rebound. What I'm looking in your eyes is to see that you disagree with me. What I'm looking in your eyes is to see that there's a two-way conversation. When I have a class where everyone's afraid to ask a question, everyone's just nodding, oh, that was great. What do you say? I don't know, but it was great. I don't need that. I'm wasting my time, I'm wasting your time. So I get the beauty of a rebound. How much more so with Hashem? Hashem is looking for, I created you that you genetically will disagree with everything I say because I am theocentric, says God, and you were created to be egocentric. Now, the match made in heaven. Egocentric, dating, theocentric, can this marriage work? And for this marriage to work, you're going to have a lot of rainbows because there's going to be friction. But the minute God saw that Noach's reacting with Teshuvah, it's not just, I'm egocentric God and bug off. No. He's fighting. He's fighting. Sacrifice. Sacrifice is the hardest thing for the human nature. You know why Shoshana sacrifice is the hardest thing for human nature? Because I'm okay with dieting. You know why? 
In dieting, it's very simple. I'm giving away the pleasure of eating for the pleasure of looking beautiful. In my case, to lower my blood sugar. So that's not sacrifice. That's not sacrifice. That's when I was younger, I loved chocolate. I'm getting older, the doctor's telling me, live short with chocolate or live long without it. And I'm still undecided, no, I'm kidding. But the bottom line is that in the reality of existence, sacrifice, we don't get it. What we're willing to do is change our goals. We're really negotiating. I'll give you this, you give me that. I'll stop eating fatty stuff and you'll give me health and good looks. That's not sacrifice. Sacrifice means simply, I am giving. That's all. That's all. I'm not negotiating with you, God. I just realize that to, ha to be able to be in a relationship, I've got to stop being so full of me. Here's an interesting joke, they say. One guy tells the other guy, after some great sopranos were singing, he says, oh, wow, did you see how his voice filled the hall? The other guy said, and did you see how people left to make room for it? <laughs> you can't have that relationship with God. You can't have. You've got to be sacrificed. And when a human being sacrifices a piece of egocentric for a theocentric relationship, that's when the colorless divine light becomes all the more beautiful. It turns into a rainbow. So now we're getting a whole different picture on the story of Noah. In Genesis, it was only truth and Torah. And therefore, the only thing God can say when he sees that man is evil from the very onset of their being, he says, well, then I'm sorry. It's time to erase everything. But then when Noah comes out and introduces a whole new concept, sacrifice, teshuvah. So God, we can't be transparent to your divine light. But look what we could do for you. We can have this, this grinding away, trying to make room, some crevices within us to allow for you to exist within us. And suddenly, God says, it's a good thing that they're not transparent to my light. Because if they were transparent to my light, I would never have the ultimate beauty which I need them for. And again, whenever you use the word God need, that, that's already heresy. What they have to offer me is imperfection and the precious humility, surrender, and teshuvah that can only come from the imperfection. To quote the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe, there is nothing more whole than a broken heart. That angels can't have. Because broken heart comes from deep pain and shame. When Noah walks out and sees the vast emptiness, the outcome of human mistakes, he experienced the wholest heart ever. And the natural thing to do then is to bring a sacrifice. When that happens, when that happens, God then says, ah, this was my original plan. Genesis wasn't the original plan. Genesis was the invitation to the wedding. Noah is the wedding. When mankind in their imperfection replies to direct light with rebound rainbows, now we're talking about the relationship happening. 
The name of tonight's lecture wasn't understanding the rainbow, it was creating the rainbow. Where do we create the rainbow? Where do we create the rainbow? So I'm going to share with you. Most of us have no problem behaving Jewishly when we're inspired. It's just very simple. I'm inspired, I want to do something, so let's do something. So I shared with my child, who was one time having a hard time davening, I shared with my child, I used to go through the same thing. There are days I just don't want to put on the tefillin. I'm actually quite frustrated with God, and I really am not in the mood of praying to God. Until one day I learned the teaching that the greatest prayer you can ever offer God is when you're uninspired when you're spitting out the words with foam in your mouth. Because that's sacrifice. It's not, and King David picked up the heart and responded to his, his, his harp, and he responded to his heart with a song that just flowed out of his heart. That's King David. I don't have that. So those moments, those moments after a flood, raging waters being thrown around back and forth, feeling beaten, feeling unloved, feeling abandoned by God. Those moments, but I got to daven now. You realize that the little bit that you're going to daven with absolute surrender, that's rainbow, that's sacrifice. It's not responding to the higher light. It's not being transparent for whatever reason right now, whatever you're going to do for God is absolute sacrifice. It's against every emotion that you're having. Sometimes, sometimes we cry out to God in pain and sometimes it's resentment to what we're going through. Again, the ego, not the ego, when you're crying out in pain, your ego was broken. When you're acting with resentment, it's rebounding off your ego. Your ego is not opening up to it. The Rambam says very harsh words upon someone who's suffering and doesn't realize this is communication. This isn't bad luck. This is communication. God's talking to you. Well, I don't know about all the other saints in this room. I sometimes have that issue. I sometimes, rather than feeling humbled, I really flow and overflow with resentment. And then, all of a sudden, I remember this teaching. Why would God allow me to be here? Why would God allow me to be overflowing with resentment as He's admonishing me with love, trying to bring me back? Because this is a sacrifice opportunity. This is a rainbow opportunity. So if you look at my davening, when I'm in that mode, it ain't nothing to sell as a Picasso. But to God, that is the most precious moment of all. That's not a diet. That's not a response to an arousal from above. That's just simply the, the cracking of an ego. I don't want to. You know what? Maybe I'm even doing it because I'm afraid if I don't do it, I'm going to get hit by a car. I don't even know what I'm doing at that moment. But the one thing I'm not is transparent, 
flowing with love and reacting to love. What I'm reacting to is what Noah saw when he stepped out of the ark. And he realized, oh my God, I'm going to have to replant all of this. So creating a rainbow is actually placed in the clouds. You don't have rainbows on sunny days. You know that, right? When there's no clouds in the skies, you're not going to have a rainbow. When there is clouds in your skies, those are rainbow moments. Those are rainbow moments. So if you want to know how to create a rainbow, it's at that moment of yuck. At the moment where you're just thinking maybe of taking your yarmulke and just putting it into your glove compartment, and I'm done with this for now. Whoa, back up. There's a moment here. The moment when you're feeling so angry at the entire human race that no one's there to save you, and you pick up a phone just to make another person smile. That's a rainbow moment. That's a rainbow moment. The time when you're feeling that no one cares about you, and you drive off the 95, and you put a dollar into the other person's basket. That's a rainbow moment. That's why God will not destroy the universe ever again. Because all of a sudden, Noah revealed the beauty of clouds, the beauty of darkness, the beauty of the ego of the heart, which only allows for rebound rather than transparency. Okay? So in simple, practical terms. When your ark is being torched around, when it's dark, when you're angry, when there's resentment, here's a moment. Here's a moment to show yourself and God why you are so loved. It's a rebound moment. People, thank you.